So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. If you have a Bible, you can pull it out and flip over. If you have a device, you can click over. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4 is where we'll be. And this is what it says. You can follow along on the screen as well. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you that you died for your church. You love your people. And so, God, through the preaching of your word, what I pray is that you would connect with our spirits and allow us to see you and worship you with fullness and with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start out with a confession. I hate flying. I'm not talking about, like, I wish I was a bird. That's all I'm talking about. But I hate flying. But in reality, I don't hate flying. I hate airports. I can't stand airports. I actually got on Google to look up, is there a word for a phobia of airports? They didn't have one, so I made one up. I have port phobia. I have port phobia. Can't stand it. Let me just bring you into my life and let you know what will happen if we fly together. First of all, if we're traveling together, be ready early. Like, I want to show up to the airport two to five hours early. Two to five. Nothing dramatic, just two to five hours. And when I show up, I'm going to have on sweatpants because I want to avoid having to take off my belt. And those sweatpants, the pockets are going to be turned inside out, okay? Shoes are going to be slip-ons. There are no laces because I don't want any hassle trying to take those off. No jacket, like... When I walk through the detector, my pocket's going to be turned inside out. And as soon as I walk into the airport, my hands are up. Like, this is just how I'm walking in. I have issues. I need counseling. I know. I have portphobia. Um, last year, I had to get over my portphobia because I got invited to go on a mission trip. I've never been on one before, but I, I got invited to go on a mission trip to Ecuador. So I got over my portphobia. I went through the metal detector, dealt with all the TSA shenanigans, and I got on my plane, and we, and we landed in Ecuador. And when we landed in Ecuador, I was blown away. It was such a beautiful country. You walk out the doors, there's palm trees. I'm like, That's a palm tree. There's smells in the air. The people are beautiful. They're speaking this beautiful language, which I can't understand. So I'm just making stuff up. Like everything is so different when I get there. But what was so what was so rich, enriching for my soul was being able to worship with my Latin brothers and sisters in their native culture. It was amazing. 
Um, one thing that was fascinating uh, while in Ecuador was uh, we would go from small village to bustling city, and it was a medical mission. And so I know you're looking at me with your judgmental eyes saying, what type of medical experience do you have, Ernest? I'll have you know this. I've seen Grey's Anatomy. More than one season. I have no medical experience. So basically, I carried boxes. But we went from small village to big city, and we were dispensing medications. We were doing triage. By we, I mean they. And we were handing out glasses. It was amazing. On the final day of that trip, we went to the Equator Museum. We went to the Equator Museum. It's like built directly on the equator. And when you go to this museum, you go through various displays. One display is, is showing off the native tribes, the shrunken head people, where they literally shrunk heads of the people that they defeated in war. They had some displays, which were the native vegetation and animals, all these displays. But at the, the, the largest display was one that showed off something called the Coriolis effect. The Coriolis effect. So you walk up to this, to, to the equator line. It's a red line directly going through the middle of the museum. And sitting on the line is this copper basin. And what they do is they fill it with water and then place a leaf on top. And then they pull the plug. And when you're on the equator, the water just goes straight down. But then they do something. They take that basin, they move it six feet to the right or north of the equator fill it with water, put the leaf on, pull the plug, and you know what happens? The water begins to turn to the right clockwise as it goes down. And then they take that basin, go six feet to the left, refill it with water, put the leaf on top, pull the plug, and you know what happens? The water begins to drain to the left counterclockwise. Let me, let me blow your mind because you're not impressed yet. Check this out. If you live in the northern hemisphere or if you live in the southern hemisphere, when you flush the toilet, it will flush in a different direction, people. My mind was blown. When you get home, you're going to be flushing your toilet. I know you are. Through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is he's putting on display the Coriolis effect. He's putting on display the Coriolis effect. Jesus sits on a mountain. He looks in the eyes of the people and he says to them, I know what you've heard. I know what you've heard. You've heard it said that blessed are the rich in possessions, for theirs are the shiny one-day delivery things of earth. But I say to you, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I know what you've been taught in school. You've been told, blessed are those who don't complain and pull their bootstraps, for they shall be comfortable. But I say to you, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You've been taught your entire life. Blessed are the pure in motive, for they shall seem good. But I say to you, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is putting on display the countercultural Coriolis effect of the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus merely raising the bar and setting a higher standard. Jesus is clutching the bar like a javelin in the hand of a cosmic Olympian. He's chunking it past the universe and looking us in the eye and saying, try to pole vault that. Jesus is not merely setting a new standard. Jesus is not giving us life hacks or one, two, three steps to an effective kingdom living. Jesus is turning the kingdom completely upside down like a snow globe. He's violently shaking it and saying to us, I say unto you, I say unto you, my kingdom is different. This is the challenge. This is the challenge. As Jesus is shaking and turning things around, he's trying to get these two things into our minds. Number one, good isn't good enough. Good isn't good enough is what Jesus is looking us in the eyes and saying. But what he wants us to know is that Jesus is better. I am better. I am better than all the things you would put on my throne. I am better than all the things you would give your life to. I am better. But here's the challenge. When things are shaking, when your life is spinning, it can feel like God is picking on you. When things are tumbling, when your health is declining, when the relationship is ending, when the job is lost, when stuff is spinning, you can look at Jesus while things are shaking and shake your fist back at him. But Jesus' invitation is to live in his countercultural, upside-down kingdom, but it only can happen by the power of his spirit. That's the invitation today. So today... Jesus is going to continue to spin things up, and he's going to demonstrate the Coriolis effect on our view of gospel generosity. Gospel generosity. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, beware. Stop right there. Beware. When I hear this word, beware, my mind jumps back to the early 2000s, and I just hear the, the voice of the rapper mystical in my mind, and all I can hear is, Danger! Danger! Get on the floor! Stop right there. You sinners, why do you even know those lyrics? You need to, y'all need to repent. South congregation. But what Jesus is saying in this beware, it's just like if you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says beware or danger, automatically you know what it's saying is there's something up ahead that is going to endanger your life. And this is the scary thing. You're likely not going to see it coming. You likely won't see it coming. Therefore, you need to be alert and you need to be vigilant. Jesus is saying beware. Okay, Jesus, beware of what? Continuing. Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Press pause, press pause. Now, Jesus, aren't you contradicting yourself? Aren't you contradicting yourself? 
See, when you sat on the mountain, I pulled out my moleskin scroll, and I've been taking notes. And earlier, you said this, and I quote, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, now Jesus, what's the deal? Is it a basket or no basket? Hidden or seen? Are you contradicting yourself, Jesus? And to understand this, what I think is helpful is to break this apart in two different sections. So first, what Jesus is saying is, beware of practicing your righteousness. Okay, so what is practice? A standard definition is to perform an activity or exercise repeatedly or regularly in order to improve or maintain one proficiency. Uh, Hopefully, you learn how to ride a bike. The way you learn how to ride a bike is... Someone purchases you a bike, you get the bike, you look at it, it doesn't have training wheels, already you're depressed. You, you finally get on the bike, you fall off because you haven't learned how to balance. So you get back on, you practice balancing, and eventually you can get on it and balance. But now you need to learn how to turn those pedals. So you begin turning the pedals, you fall off again, you get back on, you practice pedaling, and eventually you learn how to ride a bike. Eventually you're so good at it, you don't even think about it. Practice is good. Practice is a good thing, unless you're Allen Iverson. Practice, some of y'all get that, some of y'all don't. Practice is a good thing. So I don't think what Jesus is saying the problem is, is the practice. As a matter of fact, he's not talking about the the action of practicing, but instead the object being practiced, which is the problem. And so it says, beware of practicing righteousness. Okay, what is righteousness? Two definitions. One could be uh, righteousness is a condition acceptable to God. To be in a condition acceptable to God. Or if you wanted to break it down even further, it could simply be stated to be in right standing with God. To be in right standing with God. My question to you. How do you practice right standing with God? Is that even possible? Practicing right standing with God. Now, I think you already know the answer. It probably shouldn't be possible, but we sure do try, don't we? Um, I got saved in, on October 17, 2008. I got saved in the back of a cop car. Um, I went to jail for, for a while, and inside of that jail cell, there was a green Gideon Bible. I read it while I was in jail and came out a Christian. I didn't know anything about faith, didn't have a faith, faith background, and so I just got plugged into the first church I could find. Uh, and that church was located in Dell City. And so I jumped into this small Baptocostal church plant in Dale City, and I learned some incredible things about what it meant to love God and and pursue him fervently. We had this word in this small Baptocostal church. We called it going in. See, some of us in here, we, we got a Baptocostal background, so you know what going in is. So going in is that thing that you do to feel the, the, just the, the manifested presence of God. And so for us, that meant 
We did 24-hour prayer meetings. Whenever we would come into the sanctuary, we had the music going, and we'd be praying and rocking, get the rub in that leg, bust out the oil. we laying hands, people falling out. You had to be trained as a catcher. We used to go in. I mean, we running around the room. We went in. Whoa, I feel like running right now. So the question is, is that what Jesus is talking about? Is that a form of practicing righteousness? And is that to be condemned? See, you may not have the same background as me, so I would ask you, what's your version of going in? What do you do in particular that makes you just feel the presence of God in a particular way? It could be your quiet time. It could be simply walking and praying. It could be hanging out with friends and just talking about the truth of God. What is that thing for you that makes you feel especially close to the goodness and the richness of God? Is that what Jesus is talking about? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it's that action that he's talking about, but instead the motivation of it. See, these good things become bad things when they become a means of righteousness instead of an outworking of your righteousness. Whenever you need to go in to to experience this, and, and you think that that's getting you more salvation, getting you more grace, that becomes a problem because there's only one way to draw near to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Any of our good things that push Jesus to the side become bad things. And so what Jesus is going to talk about in the second half of this section is the motivational dilemma. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. This Greek word for seen translates to theaomai, theaomai. Do you notice something about that word? Listen to the beginning, thea, thea, thea. It's where we get our English transliteration, theater, theater. What Jesus is saying here and what he's warning us of is living a bogus Broadway life. Living a bogus Broadway life motivated by the faint gazes of other men. Living a life that we're putting our righteousness on display like we're in Hamilton. Living a life where we're wanting to be seen by others is what Jesus is talking about. And he warns us not to do it. If I could break it down into an equation, what Jesus is saying is good deeds plus wrong motives equals bad standing. Good deeds plus wrong motives equals bad standing. And Jesus knows we're not fully going to grasp this concept. So like any good preacher, he's going to break it down into an illustration. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, stop. Did you notice something there? Sneaky, sneaky Jesus. Did you notice something? Did you notice that he didn't say, if you give to the needy? Did you, did you notice that he said, didn't say, if you happen to stumble into generosity? Jesus says, when you give. 
when you give. Jesus assumes that we are givers. Jesus assumes that you are a giver. The text, or a a helpful commentary, uh, William Barclay, he says it like this when he's breaking down the importance of giving. To the Jew, almsgiving or giving to the needy was the most sacred of all religious duties. How sacred it was may be seen from the fact that the Jews used the same word, tzedakah, both for righteousness and almsgiving. Righteousness and almsgiving, same word. To give alms and to be righteous were one and the same thing. To give alms was to gain merit in the sight of God and was even to win atonement and forgiveness for past sins. So obviously, we're not Jews. But I think this principle still applies to us. Giving is a big deal to God. Giving is a big deal to God. Giving is such a big deal to God that the people of God saw this as one of their primary duties to faithfully follow God. But unlike the Jews, we don't believe that our giving wins us atonement. We don't believe that. But what we do believe is giving is the proof of an atoned life. I'm going to say that one more time. Our giving doesn't win atonement, but giving is the proof of an atoned life. We don't give for forgiveness. We give from a place of forgiveness. Jesus expects, requires, and demands that his followers be givers. So I must ask the question, are you a giver? Are you a giver? And I'm not talking legalism right now. I'm not talking, do you give a tithe? I'm not asking the amount that you give. I'm asking, are you a giver? You know, this isn't even a big, only a big deal for us, the people of God. This is a big deal for the world. Right now, if you tune in to the news, um, I don't know if you know this, but the presidential uh, race has already begun. And one thing that came to the news is they began putting the presidential candidates giving history on display. And this is what we found out. Washington Washington Post did a poll, and what they found is Beto O'Rourke, who's running for president, he gives 1% of his earnings to charity. Bernie Sanders gave 3.4% of his giving to charity. Kamala Harris gives 1.4%. Joe Biden gave 1.8%. Now, it's easy to look at this screen and say, shame on them. But what about if there was one more line and it just said you? If your giving to God was put on display for everyone to see, would you be filled with shame? Would you be able to bring your face out in public? This isn't just an issue for presidential candidates. This is primary to the heart of God. I bring this up as a pastor because this is a point of discipleship. If I want to know that the the temperature of your heart, if I could put a thermometer into your heart, I would look for two things. Show me your giving, show me your bank statements, and show me your calendar, and I can tell you your affections for the Lord. God loves us 
God wants all of us. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of living a life where God is not primary in our giving and in our hearts. This is a counter-cultural command, and it's only possible through the power and spirit of Christ. So the fact that we give matters, but equally, how we give matters to God. Verse 2 continues. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Um, So I got saved in the back of a cop car, which means... um, I didn't follow Jesus my whole life. And so in a previous life, way back, way back yonder, in a previous life, um, I used to frequent uh, dance clubs because a, a brother loves, likes to cut a rug. And so I, I used to frequent dance clubs. And one night I was in Bricktown hanging out with my crew, and we went to this uh, a dance club establishment. And, and we were getting our boogie on, and all of a sudden the lights went dim or dimmer than they already were. They, the, the lights went dim, and then out of nowhere, you just see this bursting of light, and dozens of sparklers are coming from an adult beverage bottle, and a, a crew of people are walking through the dance floor with this bottle with all these spark, sparkles coming out of them. They're walking directly through the dance crew and pushing us peasants out the way, and, and they walk up these stairs, and they and they walk past the outer courts where us peasants are, and they walk into the Holy of Holies, which is the VIP. And, and the VIP section has this curtain, and they push back the curtain, and they walk in, and they're seated is James Harden. And James Harden and his crew, the bottle comes in, and they're hanging out and having a good time. And, and what this parade of glory was meant to show was we're walking to the important people. What Jesus is saying is, don't pull a James Harden. Don't pull a James Harden. When you give, don't bring attention to yourself. Don't put your righteousness on display so that everyone can bestow your glories and your goodness. Don't whip out a trumpet and play the soundtrack of your awesomeness. Don't toot your own horn. When you give, don't put it on display so that everyone can see your glories and bow down to you. It's what Jesus is saying here. Do not pull a James Harden. Why? Because it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. Now, we hear it all the time. I don't go to church because church is filled with hypocrites. And I think when that statement is said, we don't understand what a hypocrite actually is. Because my return would be, well, you would be right at home. Because we're all hypocrites. But God's invitation is we don't have to live as hypocrites. So before we talk about what a hypocrite is, I want to talk about what a hypocrite is not. Up here is something we call ideal self. This is where, this is ideal self. We all have an ideal self. This is where our dreams, our aspirations, our goals lie up here. Aspirations. This is what, who we want to be and how we want the world to be, the aspirations we have. And down here is what I call reality. Reality. Reality is we haven't met our goals. 
We aspire to better, but we're not quite there. We want the world to be better, but there's still brokenness. We live in reality. Hypocrisy is not the gap between reality and ideal. Or said this way, hypocrisy is not the disparity between what we are, which is reality, and what we long to be, which is ideal. It is not the gap between what we want to do, ideal, and what we actually do, which is reality. Kevin DeYoung says this, hypocrisy is the gap between our public persona and our private character. Our public persona and our private character. Hypocrisy is the failure to practice what we preach, appearing outwardly righteous to others while actually being full of uncleanness and self-indulgence. That's the definition of hypocrisy. Greek lexicon defines hypocrisy like this. It's to be an actor, a stage player, a pretender. When you think of the word hypocrisy, you can just get the visual of a mask, of a mask. Uh, New Unger Bible Dictionary gives us a helpful, helpful filter if we think about this mask. The hypocrite is a double person, natural and artificial. The first he keeps to himself, the other he puts on as he does his clothes to make his appearance before men. So what's the danger of hypocrisy? It's the double damage that it does. Number one, when you put on a mask, No one gets to know what's really going on underneath. When everyone says, how are you? And your automatic response is, I'm good, brother. And you're really dying inside. Now you can't be ministered to. Now no one can invite you into vulnerability because you have on a mask. So it hurts the person underneath. But it also does damage to those who are viewing the mask. Because when you're viewing someone with a mask on, all you see is what they want you to see. Therefore, you're not invited into full, deep relationship. It does irreparable damage. This is why all throughout the Old and the New Testament, God does warfare against the hypocrite. If you continue reading through Matthew, Jesus over and over and over and over smashes on the hypocrites. Woe to you, Pharisee and scribes. You're you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the inside, but on 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 the outside, but on the inside, you're dead man's bones. This is the warning that Jesus gives to us about living that life. And so he does warfare. And this is the reason God can't save an ideal. God cannot save an ideal. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save some future mythical version of you. Jesus didn't walk a perfect life and endure the brutality of men so that you can put on a mask and tell him that you're okay. Jesus died for you, the real you, the jacked up, messed up version of you. That's who Jesus came for. And when you're living a lie, Jesus can't 
save and I deal. He wants you, the real you. Math are for Halloween and bank robbers. When I think about heaven, I get this picture of, of walking up to heaven, and it's kind of like Walmart, and they're sliding doors, and this is going to be like, welcome in, the light's going to shine. And so that's my picture. That's how it's going to be. So heaven has these automatic opening doors, and this is what I believe. I believe when you walk up to those doors, underneath hours of operation, there's going to be this sign, and it's going to be a mask with a circle and a line going through, and it's going to say, no mask received here. Take off the mask. Take off the mask. But this is the thing. It's easier said than done. And why is that? Jesus continues. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So three times in four verses, Jesus talks about rewards, 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 rewards. Let me ask you a question. How are skillful comedians rewarded? With laughter. That's how you reward a comedian. How is a prepared stage performer rewarded? Hopefully at the end, they get a standing ovation, claps, thankfulness for them using their craft. Final question, how do you reward a hypocrite? I'll tell you, with mounds and mounds and mounds of accolades. Mounds and mounds and mounds of accolades. This is the beware. Beware of being rewarded for that which God rebukes. Beware of being rewarded for that which God rebukes. I I get the pleasure of being able to disciple so many men in the inner city. And this is what I tell them every time. The person that scares me most are gifted people. Gifted people scare me. If you can get on stage and you can play an instrument and you can do it well, people are going to applaud you and you're never going to have to answer the invitation into discipleship because you're so gifted. If you're a gifted leader, you're going to be applauded your entire life and no one's going to ask you what's the state of your heart. If you can go gangster on a spreadsheet at the job, People are going to be so thankful for your gift that they're never going to peer into the depths of your soul. Gifted people scare me because the mask gets reinforced. And eventually you'll lose touch with reality and be destroyed by your ideal. Many of us spend way too much time virtue signaling, putting out this picture of who we, who we think we are, instead of pursuing the virtuous one. We spend way too much time virtue signaling and not enough time pursuing the virtuous one. Take off the mask. Jesus is emphasizing this countercultural command to live for an audience of one. We live for an audience of one. When we give, We don't give for the applause of man, but for the smile of our Father and our Father alone. So as we land the plane, what I want to do is give us three practical ways to be countercultural, non-hypocritical givers. 
How do we be countercultural, non-hypocritical givers? Number one, get in proximity with the poor. Get in proximity with the poor. Verse three, but when you give to the needy. First, we talked about you should be giving. Number two, you should be giving to the needy. And I want to break this down even further. You need to find a way personally to draw near in proximity with the poor in both your resources and compassion. Get near to the poor. Get near to the poor. Restore OKC, this is what we aim to do. What we want to do is are build bridges between the burbs and the block between the burbs and the block so that both of them can see their mutual need for one another. Whether you're in the inner city, you need that wealthy CEO in your life, not only for the resources, because you have something to learn from them. And wealthy CEO, you need that third grader who can't read at grade level in your life. Why? Because... In that relationship, you're going to see something very particular about the heart of God. Draw near to the poor in proximity. This has scriptural implications. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about when he returns. When he returns, he's going to judge his people. And what's the criteria he's going to use? He's not going to ask, how's your going in? He's not going to ask, how's your quiet time? All those things matter. They're good things. But he's not going to ask about those. Matthew 25, 31, he says this. When I come, I'm going to do a separation, the sheep and the goat. And he says, I'm going to place the sheep on on the right, and I'm going to place the goats on the left. And the criteria that I'm going to use to judge them is, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. You drew near to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus identifies with the poor. If you want to experience Jesus in deep, tangible ways, you must draw near to the poor. And so there's a couple different ways that you can draw near to the poor. You can use your time, your talents, and your treasures. Number one, time. Find time. Attack your calendar. Carve out time to get near to the poor. Time, talents. How do I get near to the poor? What are you good at? What are you good at? Find a way to use your privilege. And listen, that word privilege I use on purpose because we all have privilege. That means there's something that God has given you uniquely. That's all privilege is. God has given you something uniquely to be a gift to the world. Find a way to use it with those who are in poverty. And then for today's message, we're especially talking about this third one, your treasures. Use your treasures for the benefit and uplifting of the poor. But here's a challenge. David Murray says this, Our wallet is often the last citadel to fall to God's rule. 
And even when it does fall, it gets rebuilt and resecured again way too quickly. Um, this is fascinating. Uh, right now in America, we have two all times going on. We are at an all-time high at charitable giving, and we're at an all-time low at charitable giving. Right now, there's an all-time high with foundations and wealthy individuals giving to the poor. But we're at an all-time low for individuals who are either mid-income or low-income giving to help the poor. And the largest drop has been in the faith-based community. Find a way in response to God's goodness to give to the poor. So first, give to the poor. Second, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What Jesus is saying here is, do not rationalize your way out of generosity. Do not rationalize your way out of generosity. You're driving to church, you see someone homeless on the side of the road, you begin to reach into your pocket to pull out a $5 bill with your left hand and your right hand says, stop it! What will they do with the money that you're going to give them? They're just going to go buy alcohol. You're actually going to perpetuate the problem. Stop it. What happened? They're just going to squander it. They're just going to waste it. Don't give to the poor. Do not rationalize your way out of giving. And this is the motivation. What if Jesus would have done that to you? I'm going to wait till they get right before I go down there. I'm going to wait till they do the right things, say the right things before I give them the right thing. What if Jesus would have done that to you? So therefore, we don't do that to our brothers and sisters. Do not rationalize your way out of giving. And then third and final is wage war. Wage war. Verse 4 says this. So that your giving may be secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's answer the question. Should your giving be in secret? Should I never put my name on a check? Should my giving be in secret? I don't think he's saying that your giving should always be in secret, but I do think he's saying sometimes you need to give in secret. The invitation here is we should all have a Ph.D. in the state of our hearts. We all need a Ph.D. in our own soul and our own motivations. You need to ask yourself, do I have possessions or do my possessions possess me? Is there something in my heart as this joker on stage is talking about finances that I just want to bum rush them? Is there something in here that I am so captive by the things of this world that I just can't let go and I'm going to walk away sad like the rich young ruler? You need to have a PhD in your soul. You need to pray and ask God to release you and for you to see him as better. And then third, you may need to take a tangible step. After praying and knowing the state of your soul, you just might need to get some envelopes and stuff them with cash and go drop them off at some doorsteps and be a hood Santa Claus. That's to say, take it seriously. Jesus wants all of you. He doesn't take greed lightly. 
Jesus wants all of you. Wage war on consumerism. Wage war on wealth worship. Let's stand together. I want to finish by reading the final line of the passage today. And Jesus says this, And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. What's the reward? Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the reward. How do we break our captivity for the things of this world and become generous, countercultural, Coriolis effect people? We stare at the goodness of Jesus because he gave first and he gave most. We stare at the goodness of Jesus. We're reminded of the gospel and all that he has done for us and we can give with joy and with gladness. Because Jesus saw that we were the needy ones, that we didn't have righteousness of our own, and he drew near to us. He left the palatial palaces of heaven, and he migrated into the section eight of earth, and he walked the perfect life that you never could in a thousand years, and he went to the cross gladly on your behalf. That's our motivation. Jesus saw that we were in need, and he didn't rationalize it away, but he freely gave to us. That's our motivation. And Jesus is in heaven now waging war. He's waging war on our, for our hearts. He's waging war on the enemy. He's waging war in heaven, and he's forever interceding for us. Because of that, we can live in a countercultural way. Let me pray. Lord, just thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're not asking us to get right and do right before you'll meet with us. You've already met with us. You're here even right now. And you love us. And you're inviting us to to move even closer to you and to be found deeply with you. So God, wherever we have a citadel in our hearts, Lord, will you just begin to topple it now? And God, if that citadel is ultimately against you, Lord, I pray that you will break through our walls, climb over the moat, and reach in and grab us and save us and draw us to you. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.